Welcome everyone to the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology's Career and Technology Podcast. I'm your host, Wayne Stacy, and we're here today to talk about mergers and acquisitions. Uh, every law school has a, an M&A class, but the question arises, what is M&A in practice? What does a first year, second year, third year lawyer end up doing with all of the, the book learning that comes in that second or third year? So we're here today with two partners from the international law firm of White and Case. We have Jermaine Gurr and Nita Sahadiv. So thank you both for joining us. Law school teaches all about the concepts of M&A, but what does the actual practice look like for junior and mid-level attorneys? From my experience, and I went to law school many, many years ago, truthfully, law school didn't quite prepare me for actual practice of law. Um, most of the courses I took, including the business courses I took and M&A-related courses, very much focused on theoretical concepts, which is very different from when you're actually practicing a lawyer, including as a junior and a mid-level attorney. Law school doesn't teach you what a deal is going to be like. An M&A transaction doesn't give you the insight into due diligence and transactional documents, how signing happens, closing occurs. And so I think the real experience that you get, initial look into what M&A transactions are like is during your summer when you're summering at a law firm or in your first year, that's when you get to be in a transaction. Actually see what documents means when someone says, oh, do you know what, what a merger is or share purchase or an asset deal is? You actually get to see what that all means. Like what is that transaction? What does the resolution mean? What does a bring down certificate? What does due diligence even mean? A lot of people don't know that coming out of law school, right? Like what does due diligence actually mean? So I think the expectation is that when you're coming out of law school or whether you're a 2L or a 3L, we don't really expect you to know much about m and in any sense other than maybe what you read about, maybe knowing what the difference between a corporation and a partnership is. Other than that, we're not expecting you to know anything we just expect you to be eager to learn, have a genuine interest in M&A, and then the teaching will begin. On my end, I would add that because law school teaches through the Socratic method and the case study method, it is quite challenging for someone going into a transactional practice to understand how to translate those critical thinking and analytical skills from a case study Socratic method to the application of transactional work. And oftentimes what we see is that junior associates will start working, will hit the ground running, of course, and work on diligence and ancillary documentations on transactions. And they'll get comfortable with looking at precedents and kind of following forms. And we'll forget those key skills and how to apply them, the critical thinking and analytical skills, which are really important for transactional practice, just as they are for litigation, bankruptcy, or any other specific practice. And I would advise law students when they're coming into the practice or a transactional practice, not to forget those critical thinking and analytical skills. So when they're doing something with an agreement, that might not necessarily be like what they were doing when they were reading a case study. They should still be thinking about what the intent of the matter is. You know, what's the intent of the agreement? What's the, in, what's the purpose of the draft? What is intended to go across to the client? And make sure that what's actually being drafted, whether it's on a, from a form or a precedent, is articulating what was 
intended. And those critical thinking and analytical skills are very important in the practice of transactional law. Well, if you, you read law firm websites, you, you look at the, the press, there's a lot of talk about tech-focused M&As. How does tech-focused M&A differ, if at all, from traditional M&A? These days, it's hard to, it's hard to say that any M&A transaction doesn't have some tech focus insofar as many businesses are more, you know, becoming digitized, whether it's their back office operating systems or the actual business that they're in is digitized and has a tech focus. Almost every company for which we're either representing on a buy side or a sell side or a merger will have some tech aspect to it. And some of the key distinctions that I would highlight when we're looking at tech in particular in an M&A transaction, whether it's all tech or a portion of tech, is that we really need to understand what the business, why the business is using that technology, what its intent is, what its purpose is. We also need to understand whether the business owns the intellectual property or the technology, or if it's licensed in some way, and whether there are any restrictions on the ability to use that technology and what those restrictions are and how they might impede the business going forward. Those are some key aspects that I'd highlight when we're looking at technology-related M&A. But I'd mention again that these days, almost every transaction has a technology component to it. If I understand what you're saying correctly, students shouldn't be focusing on being a tech-focused M&A lawyer. They should focus on M&A and then building the additional skills to address the technology issues that are arising? That's right. At White & Case, for example, we do have within our M&A practice a tech transactions group that has specialized in tech transactional work, so focusing on intellectual property, licensing technology, and other commercial-related matters related to technology. However, that group sits within the broader M&A group, and some of them either started as intellectual property lawyers, which is a whole different kind of much bigger world than just tech transactions, or started in M&A and then focused in the technical part of M&A. But for students, I would focus first on building the skill sets to become a good transactional lawyer. And then if the interest is in technology transactions, specifically finding the right mentors and role models to focus on transactions that might have a more of a technology bend to them. To add to what Jermaine said, I think that's 100% correct that as a student, you should be focusing on M&A generally. Every law firm, like you mentioned, will have a tech M&A practice, but those lawyers are not exclusively doing tech M&A. As lawyers, as M&A lawyers, we're doing all different types of transactions. For example, I, I sit in Silicon Valley, so yes, I do do tech M&A, just given the nature of where I am. We're in Silicon Valley. We deal with a lot of tech clients, but at the same time, there's a lot of non-tech um, M&A that I do as well. And to sort of go back on the difference between tech M&A versus regular M&A, I think the, the, the deal structure tends to be the same. You go through the very same steps and stages in an M&A transaction. But as Jeremy mentioned, usually in tech M&A, IP and technology is the main asset that someone's acquiring. 
And so the scrutiny on those assets, like Jermaine mentioned, is much more. And so you, you work a lot more closely with your TechTrends um, colleagues, your IP specialists, your privacy specialists to, to understand what those core assets are and to make sure your client, if you're acting for a buyer, is getting the value that they're, they're looking to acquire. So it's just your focus shifts, but you're still sort of doing the same steps in, in a regular m and Well, I know White & Case has a, a big international presence. So how does that, that international presence change the types of clients and the, the types of M&A work you end up doing? Yes, White & Case definitely does have a huge international yeah. presence. And that, that does reflect on the type of work that we do. I think more often than not, we do a lot of international deals. So either it's representing a client, a buyer that is looking to acquire a company that's outside of the U.S. or you're representing a client that's outside of the U.S. that's focusing on a domestic target. We do a lot of deals where even if the main target is in the U.S., they have operations all across the world. And so we're working very closely with our offices in various different countries. And so, again, like I mentioned, the, the, the work stays the same, the stages of the transaction stays the same. It's just in a much more global and international scale, the due diligence that you do, the coordination that you're having with various teams is on an international level and touches upon various jurisdictions. There might be jurisdictional specific um, requirements that you need to be aware of and that gets that factors into your transaction. But speaking for myself, a lot of my practice definitely does include international deals, working with clients that have operations internationally and are looking to acquire targets from various different jurisdictions. So there's definitely a huge international aspect in the work that we do. I worked in-house for many years and, and, and was, outside counsel, it was outside counsel, then in-house, then outside again. And I worked for a global Fortune 500 company that had operations in 90 countries. As a result, when I've since come back to being outside counsel, a lot of my work is multi-jurisdictional. And one of the key takeaways for me, having done cross-border transactions for a good portion of my career, is a significant part of that cross-border work really isn't necessarily legal in nature, but rather kind of cultural in nature. And it's really important to understand that when you're working on a matter, for example, I'm working on a transaction now that is in probably 80 different countries. One, you've got to be patient and kind of take a step back and think through how you're going to put this 5,000 puzzle piece together. Um, and two, you really need to understand and use the resources locally to understand the cultural nuances of how to do transactions in those jurisdictions. And when you're organizing or structuring a transaction, you've got to understand history in certain parts of Asia Pact. You might not want to put an, a holding entity in a particular country that's going to hold certain subsidiaries if that's going to um, make the people in different countries upset given the histories between the countries. And the same holds true for for Europe and other jurisdictions. So having that kind of cultural awareness is really important as part of your job when you're working on cross-border deals. Well, the, the last question I'll, I'll put, put to both of you. For, for students that have decided they want to go toward M&A, what coursework should they be thinking about in preparation? Definitely think that they should consider taking our your basic business associations course. 
I think a securities law course is very helpful, especially if you're doing M&A work, there's a chance you're going to be doing public style M&A deals. So a basic understanding of how the SEC rules work is definitely uh, helpful. I think another one that I recommend is corporate tax 101, if that's available. I think when you do M&A work, tax, tax is going to be a very key aspect of when you're when you're looking to structure a deal, trying to understand the tax uh, repercussions of structuring it in one way versus in the other. So basic understanding of what are the tax rules that apply to corporations is definitely helpful as well. And then I do say this, after your second year, my recommendation to three else is take a course that you enjoy and that you likely will not get to take again because you're going to be doing this for the rest of your life but once you pick a particular stream so it's your chance to explore take a course that you have a genuine interest in don't don't be so focused on you know structuring your entire coursework geared towards MA. so it's going to be a lifetime of learning waiting for you so so have some fun with your coursework as well jermaine how about you what would you recommend I mean, that is so true, you know, have fun and enjoy some of the amazing class offerings that are offered to you in law school, you know, the chances that you're going to be going back to school anytime soon after you've graduated is probably slim. So if you have a chance to take, you know, rock and roll in the law or music in the law or some, you know, First Amendment, whatever the fun classes are that you know I, I echo everything Nita said it's 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 true and then if you can fit in some of these fundamental courses like tax corporate tax and business associations and you know an anatomy of the deal type course you should go ahead and do that it'll help you not feel like you're you know speaking a different language when you come into the firm but but you'll learn along the way as as all of us have to I've had the benefit of doing lots of these, these podcasts and asking that same question to several different attorneys. And, and I have to say that the seasoned attorneys that are highly successful all have that exact same answer. Take your fundamental courses and then go take something interesting. Enjoy your time. Now, some other people say, take the interesting courses to make yourself interesting. That'll help you get clients later, but we won't, you know, I won't question their motives, but it seems like the most consistent piece of advice is make sure you enjoy that last last year of law school because you'll never get it back. So thank you. I appreciate uh, the advice. This has been a wonderful, uh, wonderful podcast, a great learning experience for the students. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you for having us.